Did you know that crows and people are a lot alike? I see the kinship there so readily in watching the way crows conduct their lives and thinking about the way human beings conduct theirs. A crow is very loyal. A crow holds a grudge. The crows stay together in families across the generation. They mourn one another when one is when is dead. They'll circle, they'll create a circle around a fallen family member or flock member. And, and they appear to be saying goodbye in, in their own little corvid way. That's Margaret Wrinkle. Later in the hour, we talk with her about her new book, The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year. But first, the fascinating and tragic story of a young Jewish artist in Nazi-occupied Paris. We talk with Heather Dune McAdam and Simon Worrell about their book, Starcrossed, a true Romeo and Juliet story in Hitler's Paris. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. It's Paris, 1940. The City of Light has fallen under German occupation. Among patriotic Parisians, the pursuit of art, culture, and jazz has become a bold act of defiance. So has forbidden love for the talented and spirited Jewish teenager Annette Zellman, a student at the Academy of Beaux-Arts, and the young poet Jean Jossion. Despite their devout family's opposition— the young couple finds acceptance at the famed Café de Flore, whose habitués include Simone de Beauvoir, Jean-Paul Sartre, Pablo Picasso, Django Reinhardt, and other luminaries of the Latin Quarter. But as restrictions on the Jewish community escalate, the forces gathering around the young lovers set them on divergent and tragic paths. Literary couple Heather Dune McAdam and Simon Worrell used a treasure trove of personal letters to uncover the story behind Starcrossed. Beyond the lovers at the heart of the tale, they paint a fascinating portrait of wartime Paris and its lively scene of intellectual resistance to Nazi rule. This week and last week's show, which also featured a Holocaust story, commemorate the anniversary of Kristallnacht, the first major pogrom against Germany's Jews, which happened November 9th and 10th in 1938. Heather Dune McAdam is the author of the award-winning book, 999, The Extraordinary Young Women of the First Official Jewish Transport to Auschwitz. Simon Worrell is the author of several books, including The Poet and the Murderer, a true story of verse, violence, and the art of forgery. Simon Worrell and Heather Dune McAdam, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thanks so much for having us, Francesca. Thank you. Good to be here. So, Simon and Heather, you are both authors of previous books about World War II. Uh, Heather, you co-authored a book um, with the a, a memoir, Raina's Promise. You co-authored that with Raina Kornreich. It was her story. And uh, you've also written another book about the women of Auschwitz. And Simon, you novelized the true story of your mom in World War II, The Very White of Love. Yep. This is also a family story, one concerning a close friend of your family. So tell us about Michelle Kurse, nay, Michelle Zellman, and then tell us about the photo she handed you that propelled you into the story. So Laurence Kurse, uh, Michelle's daughter, is one of my best friends, and told me a few years ago, right after 999 came out, that her mother had inherited a box of letters that she had never seen before and art of her sister's. And uh, I said to Simon, you know, he was in England. I said, get to Paris <laughs> and go take a look at this archive and interview Michelle and see if there's a story there. And he did. Yeah, I don't need a second invitation to go to Paris. <laughs> so 
I flew from London and I arrived. It was a burning hot day. Everybody was sweaty and grumpy in the metro. But I found my way to Montmartre, uh, the Square de Clignan Court, where Michel lives, and clamber up the stairs, hot and bothered. Door opens to this fragrantly fresh-looking Parisian woman of 92, <laughs> who looks as fresh as a daisy, beautifully dressed. Of course, she's Parisian. And she ushers me in, and on the table there are masses of photos, letters, documents, family pictures on the walls. And I sit down and video record her and record her, tape record her for three hours. And at the end of those three hours, I thought, hmm, we've got a hell of a story here to tell. And did you know anything about the story of Annette Zellman before this? Because there is a film about her. Yeah, well, actually, they did the film right after COVID. I mean, I've known about it for decades because Laurence is one of my best friends. And um, and she had been trying to get me for about, you know, 25 years to write a book about her aunt. And I kept I kept saying to her, you know, you don't have any pri- primary sources. Um, it's an interesting story, but um, I don't think Laurence actually understood the whole story. And it wasn't until this archive was inherited and that archive of letters and art came from uh, Michelle's elder brother and the letters were written to him when he was in prison his sister was trying to stimulate him intellectually entertain him let him know what was going on in the family and he had held all those letters secret uh, in a box and it wasn't until he died that Michelle inherited it um, and then there's also letters from Annette in prison to Jean Josien, her lover. So I knew about it, the story, but I, um, it wasn't until the archive was found that I went, oh, now we have primary source. It is an incredible story. So Annette Zellman is the center of the story. And of course, we'll spend most of our time talking about her and the life that she had in wartime Paris until tragedy befell her. But tell us first more about her parents and her family and how she grew up. Yeah, so Annette was the second oldest of five boisterous, rambunctious children in a big, loving Jewish family, not at all strict or orthodox, presided over by Moshe, then became Maurice. He came from Poland originally. He emigrated to Nancy in eastern France, to work in the textile, and he became Maurice. And he was an operatic, theatrical man. He loved to sing Russian love songs he'd learned in St. Petersburg when he'd been there for a while. And um, it was known as the Zellman Circus. And Annette was very close to her father, and you could say that the twin axes of the leadership in the family was Annette and Maurice. The father. And why was that? Well, Annette was considered the leader of the children. That's how Michelle always referred to her. And I think probably because Maurice and Annette were so much alike. They were both theatrical. They were both vivacious. Uh, This is a very, very intelligent family. Um, Annette and Charles, her younger brother, or definitely autodidactic, you know, Charles would read Nietzsche at the swimming pool. Uh, they were hungry for knowledge, and I think Maurice was the same way. So that was how it fell, you know, Annette as leader of the children and Maurice as leader of the family. But if they did a democratic vote, the children would look at Annette <laughs> to see what she did. And then and the mother, Caleb, was the opposite of him and very laid back. So she didn't really, wouldn't have enjoyed a leadership role. A loving woman, but laid back. So you begin the story, Star-Crossed, with a photo in front of the Academy de Beaux-Arts that Michelle gave you. Tell us about that photo and the coat that she's wearing. It's so amazing. You know, people think that when you're doing archival research, that it's all books and things that are written, but but photographs are a huge part of archival research. And that photograph 
Um, there's actually four of them that we include in the book. It was taken, um, the photos were taken by a friend of Annette's who was also at the Beaux-Arts. He's obviously madly in love with her because he takes photos of her quite often. We only have five that survived that were given to uh, Michelle. But, you know, you look at that photo and you immediately know the temperature outside. You know what she looked like when she was 19. Uh, she's very proud of herself. And uh, what was really interesting was that she's with a friend and we didn't know who she was. And we sent that photograph to a biographer of Yannick Ballon, who was a uh, famous documentary filmmaker. And he goes, oh, my God, that's Yannick. And we didn't we didn't know that uh, Annette knew Yann Yannick at the Beaux-Arts and that they were so close. So you sort of unpack this visual image and discover so much more about Annette's life just simply from these photographs. And that coat, you actually have a long description of... Making that coat, yeah. 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 That's a Zazu coat, you know, that is... The Zazus um, are one of one of those wonderful. Well, Simon's best to talk about Zazus. He's got them down. Yeah, they were sort of a youth movement, youth group, a bit like the punks in the eighties. They still have resonance in our time because the Pet Shop Boys, if you remember them, British band, they did a song called "Where in the Night." In the night, uh, which has the line "Zazu, Zazu, where are you tonight?" Um, and so they had their own distinctive dress. It's a bit like the Teddy Boys as well in the <laughs> 50s and 60s in England uh, with flip back hair. There was fabric rationing at the time. So one of the things the Zazus did was um, anything the Nazis had rationed, like fabric, like hats, anything like that, this youth movement went after so they had lots of fabric lots of pleats in that and that um beautiful dress of annette's brown and white check for some reason was part of the zazu movement we don't really know why um she did make that with uh her sister michelle and you know it's a beautiful she's so proud of it that photograph where she's holding it up so you can see all the fabric that she used it's beautiful and was that the day she got into the Beaux-Arts? I think that was later. The day that she gets into the Beaux-Arts was when she's hugging the discus thrower and she's in a dark coat. Well, tell us about that. I mean, that's quite an achievement to get into the most exclusive fine arts academy in France. She had never drawn anything before either. You know, she got out some newsprint and that was the test to draw one of the sculptures in the courtyard at the Beaux-Arts, she did the discus thrower. You know, I love I love writing about what that must have been like for her, doing an anatomically correct male. And she gets in, which tells us a great deal about her talent, her raw talent, right? And then she races home. She races home, shows it to her aunt and her mom. Unrolls it in front of them. <laughs> her aunt, who's an orthodox woman, unlike the Zellmans, Covers her eyes, a daughter's eyes, and screams. <laughs> That's the Zalman Circus for you. She had never drawn anything before. I thought she had been artistic. I mean, why did she even apply? Uh, well, you know, Michelle says that they had no idea that she wanted to be an artist. Mm -hmm. She had been in theater before that. She, you know, it, Annette was just didn't know what she was going to be into. She did costume designs for the family. I mean, she was quite young. She was 19. So, you know, she sewed. She she did what the family did with, you know, tailoring. She knew how to cut patterns and stuff. But Michelle says she had never drawn anything. They'd never seen anything like that. And they were completely shocked. And she's like, I'm going to be an artist. And they were like, okay. <laughs> they had no idea. Wow. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Simon Worrell and Heather Dune McAdam about their book, Starcrossed, a true Romeo and Juliet story in Hitler's Paris. Now, this is an incredibly vivid portrait of Paris, not only of Annette, but of Paris, of a city under German occupation at this time. It's a really fascinating story. And well, first of all, let's stay with the Académie des Beaux-Arts. Tell us about Landowski. He was the head of 
the Fine Arts Academy. And you say that he carried on what you call his own private resistance. Tell us about him and what he did. Yeah, he was a great man. He was a, a prominent sculptor in his own life. Christ, the Redeemer, the, the sculptor that towers over Rio de Janeiro, that's his sculpture, actually, Landowski. And he was the director of the Beaux-Arts Academy. And uh, at first, when the Germans went in, they left him, him alone. But increasingly, there was a cultural propaganda policy and, you know, we, we described a scene in the book where he's visited by the Nazi propaganda official Emden, who was an artist himself. Emson, yes, yeah. had been an artist. And from then on, Landowski knows that he's kind of in the crosshairs of the Germans. And um, he's not quite sure where it's headed. He records it all in his diary, which for us was an invaluable source for what was happening at the academy and, and more generally what was happening to art and culture in Paris under the Germans. But yes, there is evidence that he is helping students to escape, to leave France, uh, to get to safety. And he is almost certainly, and that's probably the case with Annette, is uh, concealing their identity. So she's not listed in the main body of, of the students, she's listed as a, as a guest student. So, and Paris was the only city that Hitler didn't bomb. Why was that? Why this special place of Paris? Well, you know, that's sort of interesting because we discover in our research that he was planning on absolutely, you know, ironing <laughs> Paris under. And he decides that he's going to make Berlin even more beautiful. And so he he doesn't destroy it, which, you know, thank God for that. There is an extraordinary, um, I, I'm sorry, I'm just blanking. Who is it? Albert Speer. Yeah, Albert Speer. Yeah. Albert Speer writes that in, in a biography about Albert Speer, who, you know, he was a very famous sculptor and architect. Uh, he was Hitler's architect. Architect, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, Hitler had a soft spot for Paris because he'd been an artist or wannabe artist himself. And he'd been there as a student and he traveled in Provence as well. So he had a soft spot for it. He didn't really need to bomb it anyway because the French didn't put up much resistance. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, Albert Speer, also the Hitler's architect, right-hand man in a way, he wanted it preserved. And, and Hitler wanted... Berlin to be rebuilt. There's a scene in the book where he says to Speer, look, they're looking over from Sacré-Cœur, look at this. Now, this is what I want Berlin to be like. Now, some Jews fled to Vichy. In fact, I believe, wasn't it Charles, who Annette's younger brother, who tried to do the same? Vichy was unoccupied France. What was the relationship between occupied France and Vichy? Well, they were separate entities. The Germans didn't control the free zone, as it was called. It was run by the Vichy government and the Marshal Pétain, based in Vichy. And uh, it was all policed by the gendarmerie and looked over by the army. So, you know, you didn't have Nazis goose-stepping around in the, in the free zone, not until they invaded it in 40, late 42. So, yes, you're right that noose had increasingly begun to tighten for Jews in Paris throughout 41. There'd been onerous legislation passed banning Jews from most walks of uh, business occupations and most walks of life. And then roundups began. And um, that was when the Zellman family decided to get out of town. There's a funny story. There's a big a knock on the door at the Zellman apartment, and, and Kayla knows that nobody knocks on the door if they're <laughs> if they're friends because everybody it's an open house, and the whole apartment block used to come in and out of the Zellman apartment. So she knew it wasn't somebody from the building. So she opens the door, and there's two two gendarmes, and they say, "Where's the Jew? We're looking for the Jew, Maurice Zellman." And she says, "Ah." 
God, that swine. He went off with another Woman. whore two <laughs> weeks ago. If you find him, you can box his ears for me. But when quick, Charles... Quick as, you know... Quick, just... as, quick as anything. When Charles and Maurice get back to the apartment, she tells him they're on the first train out because it's men that are going to be rounded up. They know. And so they leave, and then the rest of the family follow, except Annette, and she decides to stay, which is, in retrospect, you could say was a fatal error. So now let's focus back on Annette and her life. Let's shift a little bit. Her life before that tragic choice that she made, she she frequented a very famous cafe, the Café des Flores. This was a place frequented by the likes of Simone de Beauvoir, Jean-Paul Sartre, Django Reinhardt. It was a center of the Surrealist movement. Uh, tell us about the Café Flore. Oh, it's so wonderful. <laughs> I mean, I have to say it was the delight of this book was writing about the young people and the intellectuals and artists and philosophers um, that were rotating through the floor and and their lives. And Annette uh, illustrates their lives, you know, with humor and wit and wonderful descriptions. You know, she's young. <clears throat> she's looking for life. Uh, we tend to think of Paris under the occupation as horrible and miserable. And that was having a pretty good time. And she was going dancing. She was going to galleries. She was really interested in the Surrealist movement. You get a sense what it was like to be a young person, 1941-1942, before the noose has actually tightened so much that it's um, getting horrible. And Annette was having a really fun time. And she was getting to know all of these intellectuals who she wanted to be like and you know they weren't famous yet right uh well, Django Reinhardt was but Simone de Beauvoir hadn't written a book yet Jean-Paul Sartre uh, shows up uh you know a few months into her arrival and it, it's just a, it's a delightful sort of like a family you know everybody who shows up there the regulars it is of um just like the the family that Annette has at home, the Cafe de Flore becomes a family for her as well. And she's very well known there. She actually receives phone calls there. She's getting art commissions. Yeah, you get a real sense of this place that I I had never seen before. I love it. And the Cafe de Flores, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, described it as adamantly anti-German. Um, there was another famous expensive cafe called the De Magot up the street, and that was a German frequented cafe but the, the floor you would not want to be a german officer if you walked in you'd be cold shoulder probably not served and the other uh, great advantage of the cafe de floor was that it had a big coal stove in the terrible winter of 41 42 and simone de beauvoir writes how she would get there early so she could get a place near the stove it was warm. <laughs> and it says a lot about uh, Annette and how special a person she was that the great Simone de Beauvoir recorded her in her book After the War, Prime of Life, where she describes her very affectionately as this beautiful young, she calls her Czech, though she was Polish, Czech girl. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Simon Worrell and Heather Dune McAdam about their book Starcrossed, a true Romeo and Juliet story in Hitler's Paris. So now let's get to the love story, or actually love stories in a way, because Annette first falls in love with Jean Rouche, who became a great I think, filmmaker who did films. Uh, he was an ethnographer. He did films in Africa and became very famous post-war. Tell us a little bit about Jean Rouche and her love of him and then her love with another Jean, Jean Jostion. There was a kind of uh, rivalry. She ended up having to choose between them. Yes, that's right. Jean uh, Rouche, yeah, he was a sort of alpha male. There was several different circles in the Café de Flore. There was the soon-to-be-very-famous people like Simone de Beauvoir, and then there was this whole group of bright young things, 
students, many of them from the Sorbonne, which Annette joined, and Jean Josian was part of it too. And uh, Jean Rouche was the sort of alpha male of that group. He was good-looking, tall, athletic, uh, handsome, a bit exotic, exotic life story. He traveled, grown up all over the world with his father, uh, with his parents, sorry. And most important of all for teenagers, he had his own apartment <laughs> above the family apartment in, the, in Montparnasse, where, you know, he had African masks on the wall and he'd have jazz records on the turntable and they'd probably smoke, you know, Balkan Sobrani Turkish cigarettes and talk about life, love and literature. So, yeah, he was attracted to Annette and she to him, but he wanted a li little bit more in the in in the sex department than she was willing to give at that point. So he moved on from her. And um, there was then, Annette then dated a chap called uh, Claude Crutel. Uh, that didn't go so far either for other reasons. And finally, she fell upon, and he fell upon her, Jean Josion. And Jean Josion, he had been involved with the with a magazine called Reverber. It was a, a, a surrealist magazine. And I just have to quote this. The last and final edition of the zine closed with the words, there is only a small margin between a, mor a normal man an imbecile, and a madman. And then you go on to, to write, and then France fell to a madman. So tell us more about Jean Jostiel. Yeah, Jean had been a pretty well-known young artist about town in the 30s. Uh, he, as you rightly say, founded a group called the Reverber, which means street lamps. Uh, and they, 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 they did publish a zine, beautiful graphics, original art, poetry, etc., uh, but it, it was more than that. It was like a, a movement, a group, and they had their own jazz band. Uh, the had happenings. orchestra. They had happenings, a bit like in the sixties in San Francisco. Uh, pretty crazy stuff. And he was the presiding spirit of it. And um, his star had slightly dimmed by the time the the, the war came, and the, in fact the. Reverber no longer existed, although they did briefly revive for one uh, show in 1941. But uh, he he was he was still well known, which which made it doubly surprising that we found not a single photograph of him except the one published in the book of him in the free zone with Annette's parents once they'd gone to Limoges. Uh, that surprised me a lot. I looked everywhere. You'd have thought there would have been a press photo. Uh, a photo of him at a theatre opening or a, an event or something, but there wasn't. So, And there was not a lot of information about him either, so I had to kind of construct that from from what I, what sources I could find. Most of our source was Michelle because uh, yeah. because she knew him. She yeah. was her his typist. Uh, he was writing a, a novel in, in the free zone after Annette disappeared, and and Michelle was his typist, yeah. and, and she just adored him. She thought of him as her brother-in-law, yeah. and uh, remembers, you know, her memories of Jean Josien were just delightful. She remembers him telling, he was one of the first people to go scuba diving, and uh, she remembers just sitting there and listening to him talk about what the under uh, underwater world was like, and just sitting there captivated by his stories. Uh, but unfortunately, um, a lot of the archive for Jean Josien is does not does not survive the war. The other thing about Jean is worth mentioning in terms of the story, and that's the Romeo and Juliet theme. Two families was that Jean Josien's parents were his father Hubert Josien, Doctor Hubert Josien, was a, a skin specialist of some renown. He was also an anti-Semite of the first water and a, a radical Roman Catholic right wing. He didn't believe Jews belonged in France or could ever be truly French. He, 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 moved, he moved in collaborationist circles. He went to the you know Nazi cultural events. 
uh, at the German Institute and, and all of that. And so the idea that uh, their beloved only son, Jean, might was getting involved with a Jewess was absolute anathema to them. And, and the Salmans weren't that happy about it either. They wanted her to marry a Jewish boy. So he wasn't Jewish, and it didn't sit well, obviously, with his father, and we'll get back to his father, but it didn't sit well with Annette's parents either. Neither parent wanted them to get married. They did want to get married. Talk about that and the reverberations of that. Yeah, as Heather said, her parents were also not that keen on the idea, but they I, I think it was not so much they were anti-Gentile as that they were they believed that Annette was too young and it was a dangerous time in war and that was not a time to be getting married. But after the parents leave, Annette promises she'll quickly come down and join them in Limoges. She has no intention of doing so. In the free zone. She's in the free zone. Yeah. And she promptly moves into John's studio, which becomes their love nest for the next two months. Right. And I don't know how much you want to go into this. And part of the story, or leave it to the reader to discover. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we don't want to have any spoiler alerts, but the, you know, Romeo and Juliet is a bit of a spoiler alert. We we know um, we know it's not going to be a happy ending. Yeah, so what precipitates is, it, is that uh, they decide that they will get married. Uh, and we surmise that one of the reasons they decide that is because one of Annette's frenemies, Bella Lempert, she's dragged away in the middle of the night from her boyfriend's bed. And uh, I think that puts the fear of God into Jean and Annette, that the same might happen to Annette. So if they get married, then she'll have the Zellman, she'll have uh, the Josiel name, which is a distinguished name and also a Nazi sympathetic name. So they published their marriage bans, and a day afterwards, she is arrested at, at parental apartment on Boulevard Strasbourg, where she's returned for a night from, from Jean's studio. Yeah. 24 hours after she's uh, arrested, the SS in Paris pass a law making it illegal for a Jew to marry a Gentile. So she's now a political prisoner. And... You know, that just cinches her fate. She's taken to the depot, uh, which is a really nasty prison um, in the the basement of the Palais de Justice. She thinks she's going to get out any day now. The letters from the, from the prisons are quite stirring. They're quite long. Uh, she gives incredible descriptions about what's going on inside the prison. And, you know, they start out hopeful. Uh, you know, bring clean underwear and a clean bra and bring my favorite skirt so that when I get out, you know, I'll look beautiful for you. And and then, you know, it becomes uh, she gets more and more depressed as she gets the feeling. Well, as she sees more and more Jews getting arrested for petty crimes, uh, one of her friends is arrested for making a public telephone call. Uh, one of the women that she's with is arrested for not getting into the end metro car. Uh, so the Jews had to be in the very back of the metro, uh, just like Rosa Parks. And uh, Tamara Iserly ends up, you know, uh, in prison for not getting into the right metro car. So these are really ridiculous crimes, uh, with around quote marks, uh, that, you know, they're just coming up with anything they can do to put uh, people, Jews, into prison. And we will leave our listeners to discover the rest of the story when they read your book, Simon Worrell and Heather Dune McAdam, when they read Starcrossed, a true Romeo and Juliet story in Hitler's Paris. It really is a terrific read. Thank you. Thank you, Francesca. Thanks so much, Francesca. In addition to her writing, Heather Dune is a filmmaker. Her film, 999, The Forgotten Girls, will debut at the Hamptons Documentary Film Fest December 5th. Go to writersvoice.net to hear or read a sample of Starcrossed. Next up, The Comfort of Crows. Stay tuned after a short break.
Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Sign up for our free Writer's Voice podcast and newsletter at writersvoice.net. You can find more great content there, including web-only features like links, book excerpts, and extended interviews. And if you're listening to our podcast, give us some love on your podcast app. It really helps others to find the show. The leaves are falling in ever greater numbers as autumn marches into winter. And as they do, the question arises, what to do with them? My guest, New York Times columnist and author Margaret Rinkle, has a simple solution. Don't do anything. A messy yard is great habitat for our endangered wildlife. Her new book, The Comfort of Crows, is a literary devotional, 52 chapters that follow the creatures and plants in her backyard over the course of a year. Beautifully written, it reminds us to pay attention to the fragile and wondrous life around us. And by protecting them, we enrich our own lives immeasurably. Margaret Rinkle, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you for having me, Francesca. The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year, is such a beautiful book. It's a weekly collection of short essays throughout the year about the critters uh, that you encounter in your backyard, as well as some other things. First of all, tell us about your backyard. I need to confess that I use the word backyard in a fairly comprehensive way. Like, it's not just my backyard. It's also my side yard and my front yard. And... Um, to a much lesser extent than nearby parks and trails. I'm I'm using backyard as a catch-all term for nearby nature in all its manifestations. So I want to always want to say that you don't have to have a backyard to put into practice some of the the nature-friendly principles that are available to us. But it's a scruffy place, honestly, Francesca. It's there are places we, my husband and I, don't mow anymore because our children are grown and no one's playing ball in the yard. And we do that because the wildflowers take root and the wild creatures use that space, you know, to hide from predators or to just conduct their daily lives. We've planted a lot of native plants that especially plants that feed the pollinators and that later feed the birds and other creatures. We have berries of every kind that I can think of that will grow here in this very largely shady yard. There's a black raspberry vines and black canes and blackberry canes and wild grape vines and passion fruit vines and all kinds of nuts and berries. And I I just keep adding to it because I want my yard to be, I want my yard to be used the way it was meant to be used as habitat for my wild neighbors. Mm, That's so wonderful. We're going to delve much more deeply into the concepts you've just introduced us to. But first, I want to note that You quote Mary Oliver several times. She is my favorite poet, including at the front of the book. And she says, to pay attention, this is our endless and proper work. And it seems to me that the book's core message is to pay attention and to also take care of the life around us. As you know, we've already got a sense of with what you've just said. You start the book with a fox, with mange. I wonder if you could tell us about that fox. It's really an example of the care that you bring to your observations of wildlife and the creatures around us. Foxes are, um, they're one of the wild neighbors, uh, one species that has adapted fairly readily to life among us. Not all creatures can do that. Many of them will die. Many of them will move away if we change the habitat too much. But foxes are fairly adaptable. And they do generally pretty well living among human beings as long as they have, you know, food and 
a place to den up and protect their young from predators. But one thing that happens to foxes in uh, increasingly in suburbia and in urban neighborhoods, and I, I suppose probably in rural areas too, is that as people use poison to control rodents, they will, instead of setting a trap, put out poison pellets that don't kill the the chipmunk or the mole or the mice or the anything until later after it's left the premises. What that means is that the the little creatures that are meant to um, live among <laughs> live among us and can be treated much more humanely, they die a very slow, agonizing death. And what that means for predators for whom they exist in a food chain is that they're much easier to catch when they're dying, when they're slow, when they've slowed down. And so the poison that the mouse eats or that the mole eats, that poison moves up the food chain. When a fox kills it, the animal and eats it, or when a hawk or when an owl or when an eagle kills and eats it, the poison enters their body too. So mange is caused by a mite that's very common among canids, but healthy foxes are able to largely fight off the dangers that the mites bring to them, the long-term complications. But foxes that have ingested poisoned prey cannot, and so the mites carry mange. And in the story that I write early in the book, I was driving out of the neighborhood. I was actually going to get a COVID shot. But in any case, I saw this fox in the daytime and right on the side of the road in a neighbor's yard. And I, it was obvious that something was very wrong with it. Its eyes were swollen. It should not have been out in daytime. It was very hungry. It kept pouncing at something it couldn't see because its eyes were swollen nearly completely shut. And so I knew, I mean, it was obvious the the fox had mange. Mange is easily treatable, but you have to catch the fox first to give it the medicine it needs to kill the mange. And I didn't have any way of catching this fox. So I called a nearby animal rescue organization and I asked for help. And they sent out a man with a trap the next day. And he taught me how to set it and taught me how to monitor it. And our hope was that we would catch the sick fox, take it back to the nature center and treat it and then bring it back in time to rejoin its mate for mating season. It didn't quite work out. You actually did catch a fox, but it was a healthy fox. But I think it's an example of the care that you take. I think a lot of people would, you know, say plant a pollinator garden and that's wonderful. I don't know how many people would would set up a, a stock tank for tadpoles or set out a water dish for a possum or a heated bird bath. Talk about why you take that extra step. For me, the caretaking is is almost a response to desperation. I'm so worried. I'm so worried about what's happening to the natural world. And it gives me some peace to feel that I am doing everything I can to help. And I don't mean to suggest that putting out water on hot days or keeping an eye out for animals who are suffering. I I also make contributions to conservation organizations who, you know, pool those contributions to make much bigger, a much bigger difference to the natural world. And, you know, I'm going to vote for conservation candidates when I have the opportunity to do that. But in terms of planting a pollinator garden or just trying to be a good neighbor to wildlife, I've always found that that's just very self-reinforcing. You, When you do it and you see the immediate effects, you put up a nest box and the bluebirds move in or you leave the the area along your fence line unmowed so that wildlife has a little corridor to get from one place to the next in protect in a protected area and you see that happening it gives you such pleasure that you want to do more you just want to however 
effective or ineffective it might be, it's very effective at the micro level. You can, when you pay attention and when you make small efforts, you are rewarded almost instantly. It might take uh, one season for the bluebirds to find your box, um, or perhaps the Carolina wrens will find it instead. It doesn't matter. It's it's a, a useful thing, and it makes you want to do more. Yeah, we've spoken with, for example, with Doug Tallamy uh, about, you know, the kinds of practices that you are doing. And he he talks about each backyard can create a piece of a national of a backyard national park, you know, the sense that stitching together, you know, neighborhoods really of pollinator gardens could really go a long way towards helping restore some of the habitat that we've lost, even if it's a patchy approach. Well, it's very true. And he's a hero to me. Douglas Tallamy's books have been very instrumental in my thinking. I've always been you know, my first book is uh, about my childhood in the natural world, late migrations. And so this is not an unfamiliar landscape to me in some ways. But I became much more intentional in thinking about which plants, which flowers in the spring would feed not just pollinators, but the most pollinators. So his organization, Homegrown National Park, is a great resource for listeners and readers who want to take that next step because he has great books. They're very informative and in a neophyte friendly way because I am not a scientist and he is. But the website Homegrown National Park also has lists of plants and the insects they support, you know, that you can look up by region and by habitat. This is Writer's Voice and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Our guest this segment is New York Times columnist Margaret Rinkle. We're talking about her acclaimed new book, The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year. So we are now in fall, and a lot of people are going to be going about, if they haven't already started, cleaning up their yards, you know, making them um, neat and pristine, that's not such a great idea, you say. Uh, you are in favor of the messy yard. So tell us about that. What should people be doing instead? You know, I did the fall cleanup for a lot of years. You know, winter is sort of discouraging. There are no flowers blooming. Even the evergreens have gotten a sort of dull green and not that lovely new green of springtime. And so it, it you you kind of want your yard to look a little somehow cheerful. So you pull the weeds out and put down mulch and you cut all the flower stems down and tuck everything in. And and I did that for years. And and I understand now that it's what I'm doing when I'm quote unquote cleaning up is I'm removing necessary uh vegetation from my wild neighbors. So when I put down a thick uh, layer of mulch, for instance, I'm blocking the exit that uh, ground-dwelling bees need when they come out in the springtime. When I cut down the dead stems of flowers and um, shrubs, I'm I'm closing off an opportunity for overwintering insects to have a sheltered space to spend the winter. When I rake up the leaves, I'm raking up all kinds of living things that could be harbored in those leaves if I just gave them a chance. So when I stopped picking up the leaves, I started noticing many, many more lightning bugs in the summer because they they weren't killed inadvertently in my efforts to make my yard look tidy. I've watched squirrels carrying fallen leaves up to a dray to create a, a, a little nest to spend winter safely, not just tucked in and warm, but also hidden from predators. You see possums carrying dead leaves around with their tail to do the same thing. It does look a little untidy, but the longer I do it, the more my eyes see the beauty in that, too. I've, my eyes have become attuned to a new kind of beauty, and I see 
this yard that look it looks very different from my neighbor's yards, but it's beautiful to me because I know how much life it's harboring. Yeah, you know, when you as you were talking about that, I I thought, you know, human beings think that animals they don't use tools. They're not intelligent. But <laughs> uh, your book really, and what you've just said, uh, you know, emphasizes that each of these creatures, in fact, they're quite intelligent. They do use tools, even if that tool is just a bunch of leaves that they're carrying. There's a purpose. There's consciousness. There's intention. I want to talk about crows because this book is called The Comfort of Crows. You say that crows are a lot like us. So uh, tell us, why did you pick the crow to to put into the title of your book? And how are they a lot like us? Well, that's really the reason. It's because they are a lot like us. I, there are probably more bluebirds and red wasps in this book than there are crows. But from my observation and observations and from my reading... I see the kinship there so readily in watching the way crows conduct their lives and thinking about the way human beings conduct theirs. A crow is very loyal. A crow holds a grudge. The crows stay together in families across the generation. They mourn one another when one is when is dead. They'll circle. They'll create a circle around a fallen family member or flock member and and they appear to be saying goodbye in in their own little corvid way and they are sometimes violent but their violence is is always for a reason they're killing something so they can feed their young or they're chasing something away so they can protect uh, themselves and one another. Oh, and the thing, one of the things I love best about them is they play, even as adults. Many, many higher order animals play as young, but they, they no longer play when they're adults, but crows do. Speaking of using tools, they'll, they'll create a sled out of a piece of cardboard and sled down a snowy roof, or they'll pick up a piece of driftwood on a beach and windsurf for no reason but just that it's enjoyable to them. And when you see these similarities, I think it's in one species, it's not so great a leap to see your own kinship with other species too. And I think when we do that, that's the key thing to remaking our understanding of how the natural world works it's to understand that as different as they are, as alien and fascinating because of their difference, it's the similarities that make us want to protect them. Is there a creature that you may have felt quite alien from that with this new and growing understanding of yours or deepening understanding that you came to see that connection? I think probably the rat snake in my yard. <laughs> There's a, a good sized rat snake in my yard. And rat snakes, of course, are not venomous, but they are very effective predators. And some of their victims are baby birds. And it's very hard to love a snake that is eating baby birds. But, um, I think what happened really is that one time I watched a snake, the, the, the rat snake waking up. It was coming out from under the house and it was still kind of sluggish because it was early spring and, and it wasn't able to move quickly, but it saw me. And when rat snakes are afraid, they do this little zigzag thing with their bodies. It's just a little bit of a kink all the way down the length of their bodies and it's, I believe, nature's way of helping the snake to blend into the surrounding. So when it senses that it's in danger, it will do that to as a, a way of deflecting attention from a predator. And it made me realize that to this, the snake was far more afraid of me than I was of the snake. Something about seeing that rat snake in a state of fear made me feel for it in a way I can't really describe. And, and just... Being able to think that way helped me 
make a little bit of peace with the whole idea that nature is red in tooth and claw because it it really is. I mean, when you watch a, a bird catch a fairly large cicada and just start bashing it against a tree limb so it'll stop calling out and hold still long enough to be eaten, that's not a whole lot different, really, for the cicada. It's no different at all from a snake eating a bird. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Margaret Wrinkle, author of The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year, and also a columnist for the New York Times. So talking about the snake, this brings us back to the stock tank that you created in your yard for tadpoles. Why did you do that? What happened? What was the role that the snake played in this? Well, there are, there are several things. During the early part of the pandemic, when everybody, everything was locked down, I have two neighbors with swimming pools. That year, that winter, the house of one of the neighbors burned down. It was being renovated, and I don't know what happened. I don't know if a construction worker left a cigarette burning or if something went wrong and nobody was there to stop it until it was too far gone. But those people obviously didn't live there <laughs> anymore. The house was gone. And then other neighbors had gone to Florida for the winter and couldn't get back. So there were two swimming pools free for the taking as far as the frogs were concerned. And all of a sudden, all night long, the night was filled with the sound of frog song. And there are no lakes nearby, no ponds. So I don't know where these frogs came from. Frogs can, can travel a long way on a rainy night. Um, in search of new territory. And I just realized that I wanted frogs. And those frogs weren't already here. But the frogs that are here, are supposed to be here, that are commonly here, are tree frogs. And so I decided I, I would make a little poor man's pond. And I, and I bought a stock tank from Tractor Supply. And I filled it with water and treated the water to get rid of the chlorine. And I put some aquatic plants in there. And I really needed quite a lot of vegetation because I knew that snakes can hunt in water. And if I wanted there to be frogs in my yard, I needed to give them a place to hide. And you end that essay with the hint of, of a tadpole, seeing one uh, appear. Did tadpoles thrive in that stock tank? Here's the honest answer. I really don't know. It's it's a, a black recycled plastic giant 40-gallon bucket, basically. And the water is so filled with floating plants and underwater plants. And, and of course, any tadpole that turns into a frog that's a tree frog, will climb out of that tank at night and take to the trees. And it's not something I would ever see. So I don't actually know. Well, and there's so much we have not talked about, but I would love to ask you if, do you have the book there? I do. Would you be willing to read one of the essays? It's the one that starts on page 145, Loving the Unloved Animals. Because in, in some ways, I think that that's really... There's so many essays here that are the heart of the book, but but this is, I think, a lesson that most of us don't think about, or we make exceptions for the animals that we don't love, and we don't treat them with the kind of care that we do the others. Would it be too much to ask you to read that? Not at all. I'd, I'd love to. And I think that's a good way to put it, the way you just described it. It's funny to me how many people will love some animals and then not love others at all. And and yet they're all part of the same beautiful system. This one's called Loving the Unloved Animals, Summer Week 3. It begins with an epigraph from William Blake's Visions of the Daughters of Albion that goes, Arise and drink your bliss, for everything that lives is holy. Sing, O oh, muse, of the lumbering opossum, of the nearsighted stumbling opossum, whose only defenses are a hiss and a hideous scowl. 
Let us rejoice in the pink-nosed, pink-fingered opossum, her silvery pouch full of babies, no bigger than a honeybee. May the young opossums thrive to ride upon her back. May they fatten and grow large and stumble off on their own to devour cockroaches and carrion and venomous snakes. May their snuffling root the ticks from our yards and the snails from our flower beds. When they faint in the face of our baying hounds, let us guard them till they wake. Let us cheer when they rise and shake themselves. Let us send them off with our blessings as they blunder back into the night. Let peals of gratitude ring out too for the glossy vulture, soarer of air currents, eater of gore. We gaze in wonder at the vulture's distant perfection, mistaking them for creatures we thoughtlessly love much more, eagles, hawks, ospreys. Slow in our heavy human bones, we follow them with our eyes, watching as they barely shift the angle of their wings to bank and glide, to circle and circle again. O vulture, may we remember in your circling the cycle you complete. On the ground, something is suffering. Something is coming near to the end of its time among us, but its life is not ending. Its life can never end. You are turning its body into something beautiful, blood and feathers and hollow bones. Earthbound no longer, the dead are rising again in you, rising and rising, lifted on air. As the bright clarity of June gives way to hot July, let us consider the whine of the mosquito, the secrecy of the spider, the temper of the wasp. Who among us could love you? Who could love even one of you, bearing your poisons and your pain into the thick, close air? We could. We could love you if we reminded ourselves that no creature is made up only of poison that no life is only a source of irritation or pain. Let us love the mosquitoes for feeding the chittering chimney swifts wheeling in the sunset. Let us love the mosquitoes for feeding the tree swallows flying low over the lake at the park. We must love the spider for spinning the silk that holds together the moss of the hummingbird's nest. The silk that stretches as the baby birds grow. We must love the wasp for eating the caterpillars that eat the tomato plants. We could love you all if we only remembered the tree swallows and the hummingbirds, if only we remembered the taste of homegrown tomatoes still warm from the sun. On endless summertime evenings, on cool and generous summertime evenings, let us speak kindly of the red bat, the homely little bat with the smushed face and the hairless infants clinging to her fur by teeth and thumbs and feet. In daylight, she dangles one-footed from a tree branch, masquerading as a dead leaf. At nightfall, she unfolds her canny wings and skitters to her work in the sky, circling under the streetlights, clearing the air of moths whose larvae eat our trees, sweeping up all the biting, stinging creatures we swat at in the dark. We behold the rat snake gliding through the nighttime weeds. We behold the sleek skin, cool but not damp and the clever darting tongue sniffing out the contours of the world. We watch as she finds the crack under the tool shed door, understanding that she is on her way to finding the baby mice tucked into a nest in the corner of a drawer full of rags. 
Pity the young mice, born for just this purpose. Always there are mice, more mice than the world could hold if not for this beautiful sinewy creature, this silent celebration of muscle and grace, this serpent serving our uses, but too often coming to a brutal end at the end of a hoe. World, world, forgive our ignorance and our foolish fears. Absolve us of our anger and our error. In your boundless gift for renewal, disregard our undeserving. For no reason but the hope that one day we will know the beauty of unloved things. Accept our unuttered thanks. That is just so beautiful, and this is the kind of extraordinary writing that is throughout the book, but this essay particularly hit home to me, and I want to thank you so much, Margaret Wrinkle, for reading it and also for talking with us here about this book, this wonderful book, The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year. Thank you, Francesca. It's an honor to be with you. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. And you can read interview transcripts at the Writer's Voice Substack. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon. Mm -hmm.